Hi, uh, BTEC students. So I am going to talk to you today about coding and analysis and a little bit about structure. So this uh, podcast follows on from the earlier one about analysis where I spoke about the two by two. And certainly in the two by two, we spoke about structure, but I'm, I'm going to also talk about structure a little bit in relation to the whole project and then we are also going to talk about the conclusion. So we're going to cover quite a bit of ground and hopefully that this uh, fills in the gaps in relation to the analysis and how you do the analysis. So in, the, in talking about the two by two, we spoke about two things, each with two subparts. So we spoke about the rules for analysis, the rules being that you must follow the steps and that you must give evidence. And then we also spoke about the structure in the, in the sense of the recipe versus the cake. Now today we're going to spend some time talking about both of those things within the structure. We're going to talk about the recipe, we're going to talk about the cake. And so I want you to keep thinking about and engaging with those issues because I may not, hopefully I will, but I may not always refer back to the recipe versus the cake. So you need to have clear in your head that when I'm talking about the coding, when I'm talking about the thematizing, when I'm talking about the steps that you are following, I'm talking about the recipe. I'm talking about how you make um, your understanding of, these, of the issues that you are looking at. And when I talk about the analysis, when I talk about the separate section on analysis where you tell the story of what your participants have said that is made up of uh, your quotes, your literature, and your unpacking and, and, and uh, understanding of what you are seeing, that is the cake. And that is ultimately what you're being marked on. So if we think of the the method or the analytic processes uh, that, that are necessary, you start with some ingredients. Those are the outcome of your data collection. So you will have your focus group recordings uh, as well as the transcripts. And, or you will have the interview recordings and you will have the interview transcripts. And those are your ingredients. And obviously you want the best ingredients possible when you're making a cake to make the best possible cake. Then how you put those ingredients together, how you make sense of the data that you have in a structured, systematic way that it is scientific and not just your opinion, that's the recipe. And then the, the actual uh, analysis itself, the, the findings, the outcomes of that baking process following the recipe, the story that you are telling about the world, that is your cake. So make sure that you keep that in mind. Now the one thing that we spoke about last time was following the uh, steps. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to that because in terms of coding, that is where coding happens. It happens in the steps from your method. Now most of you, in fact, I think all of you are using Braun and Clark's six steps for analysis. 
And so I'm going to stick with explaining those six steps. But if you are using somebody else's approach, if you are using a different kind of analysis, the process is actually very similar in the sense that you need to make sure that you follow the steps and that you um, are able to systematically show how you got to your findings as opposed to, oh, I just think this is what's important. So whichever method you're using, you're following a structured stepwise process that you have to prove to your reader that you have indeed followed the steps, whatever those steps may be. So whoever's approach you're using, you need to make sure that you have followed the steps that have been given by that author. Now for Braun and Clark, they're the six steps. There's uh, being familiar with the, the data, there's the early codes, there's the grouping of data, there's the check step, there's the thematizing step, and then lastly, there's the write-up step. Now, I, this is how I understand those six codes. Um, obviously, uh, six steps. Um, obviously, you will go back to Braun and Clark and have a look at what he called each of those steps, but that's the, that's the idea within each of those steps. So that you first become familiar, then you code, then you group, then you check, then you thematize, and then you write the story. You don't write the story first and then see how it fits with um, all the other parts. You have to systematically go through the steps to make sure that you have properly represented and understood what your participants are saying. So step number one is to be familiar with the data set. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we, we did touch on it last time. So you know that it um, is about the transcription process, it's about the reading that you're doing, and you will write that for your, um, your reader. How did I do step number one? Uh, then the next step, and this is the one I want to focus on, is the coding step. So... Braun and Clark don't uh, indicate which kind of coding they prefer. I think that they are flexible, that they, you could use it an inductive or a deductive coding. I think that they do lean into an inductive coding, and I do as well, but I think that their method could easily be applied to a deductive coding and to making sense of the world through established codes. So what I, I mean by that is if you are doing a deductive coding, you are using what are called established codes, and established codes are ideas that have come from your theory that you want to check. So let's say I was using the biopsychosocial model as my theory for a study, likely I would then use a biological code, a psychological code, a, a social code um, as things that I want to look for in the data set and I only want to look for those things I don't want to look for if people talk about any other things and maybe that is particularly uh, useful for if I do a theory that's as broad and as vague as the biopsychosocial because what else is there right? maybe you could talk about things like uh, medical or political, but even those would fall broadly under one of those 
areas. So um, when you've got a, a theory that's quite all-encompassing, a deductive uh, approach could work really well. But for the most part, a deductive approach means that you are limiting what you're going to look at. I'm only going to lo uh, look at the issues addressed by my theory. So I'm only going to look at agendas if I'm doing an agenda setting theory. I don't want to know about um, representation or public participation. Like even if those things come up in my in my what my participants are talking about, they're not relevant to my study, so I don't want to look at them. I only want to look at agendas. And so you have established ideas or codes that you are going to look for in the text and only look for those things, and they come from your theory. So deductive coding is a way to test theory. It doesn't allow for new ideas. It doesn't allow for your participants to believe something different to what the theory is suggesting. It simply tests whether the theory applies or not. So how well does my theory uh, work in the world? And there is value to that. It is important to check and test theory. But my leaning, and I think Braun and Clark's leaning, is, is more towards an inductive coding. Because inductive coding can um, allow us to look at theory, but it also allows us to build new knowledge. So deductive coding tests theory, whereas inductive coding uh, builds theory. So those, that's the difference between the two. In terms of the practical stuff of doing uh, an inductive coding, instead of looking for established codes, you will create codes in the reading. And you will look for what I call common ideas. So whenever an idea repeats, whether, uh, particularly in each individual transcript, so you're not looking at this point across all transcripts yet. So you're looking at, I don't know, Sally's transcript, and you're going through Sally's transcript and she mentions an idea more than once. That, that idea gets coded. And by coded, I just mean you identify it, uh, extract it, label it as being a particular idea. So if, for example, Sally is talking about uh, her bicycle, and she's talking about how having a bicycle allows her to do certain kinds of things. Every time she mentions her bicycle, you will highlight that in a particular color, or you will pull that out into a separate document, you know, cut and paste kind of, kind of jazz, and you will label that idea bicycle, right? And so you're, you're keeping as true to, as, as possible to what participants have said, but you've now got a, um, a code or, or a label for that particular idea. And you go through the, each transcript by themselves and you do that for every idea that comes up. And there isn't a limit on how many ideas can come up. It depends on what participants have said. So you need to go through it carefully and make sure that you have captured all of the different ideas that repeat in that document. So you go through through the document and highlight in different colors is a, is a useful way because you can 
showed that there is a connection between two different ideas by, by highlighting them in the same color. Or you can just underline them and make a note of what, what code they belong to. However you want to do it, it it's not important. The, what is important is that you capture all of the ideas that emerge and are able to then draw up a list for each transcript. What are the codes in that transcript? So I often find I do it on the back of the transcript, actually, is I, I make my list on the back. Um, because then I've got them to refer to uh, at all points. So these are the codes that came out of or emerged from this transcript. And so you should be able to do that for each individual transcript to code and to then move on to the next transcript to code. And you will find that, that some transcripts have ideas that others don't, and that's okay. It's okay if Sally is the only person who spoke about bicycle. It's not a problem. Um, you are reflecting on what Sally has said. And in, in Sally's uh, conversation with you, she has spoken about bicycle. Now, the same is, is true for, for focus groups. It's a little bit harder because there's multiple people speaking. But the basic idea is the same, that you go through that uh, transcript and you look for the ideas that repeat. So even if, if Sally and John are talking about bicycle, that's still the same idea of, of bicycle. And so you want to make sure that you capture that. And each, each transcript, so each focus group transcript will have its own list of codes that come out. So that is uh, coding, is simply looking for common ideas and being able to create a list of what are the ideas that emerge from that document. And like I say, coding can be inductive or deductive, so you need to be clear which approach you're using. Um, I find that for those of you who are doing interpretive or critical studies, it is helpful to have emerging codes uh, by using an inductive approach. So I do strongly recommend an inductive coding, but you can also argue for why you may want to do a deductive coding, and that really is um, at your own discretion and what makes sense for your project. So once you have the list of codes, you move on to step three of Broad and Clark's approach. And step three is the grouping of data. And essentially what this is, is you take the list of codes that you got from step two and from each of the different transcripts and you now put them into a global list and it doesn't really matter where they sit in that global list because what you are then going to do from that global list is to draw up patterns. So as you see things that, that maybe belong together under a common idea, you will pull those things into a group. So let's say we've got the idea of bicycle from Sally and somebody else spoke about their car and somebody else spoke about a train and somebody else spoke about um, a plane. I don't know. Or maybe some other, you know, there was some crossover and lots of people spoke about their cars. Um, you could have a group that talks about modes of transport. So depending on, on how they talk about things and how and what makes sense in relation to your project, you're going to start to see patterns emerging. 
ideas that sort of belong to a bigger idea. And you need to be able to identify what that bigger idea is and put all the relevant codes into that group. So this work is a bit tricky because you have to start to see and, and decide on what ideas work together. But if you, if you keep in mind what people are saying and what is important to them and why and and you are familiar with the data, so exactly what they were talking about, you should be able to um, represent what has been said fairly in these groups. So pull the ideas, the codes into groups that now show a pattern in the data set. And at, at this point you can have as many groups as, as there are. So don't try and limit yourself to a certain number of groups. Just look at how many codes you have and where they belong and see how many groups you come up with. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you have three or 300 groups at this point. That's the, the point isn't to limit the numbers. The point is to best represent what people have been saying by capturing the codes into groups that make sense for your data set. The fourth part of Braun and Clark's method is to check. So you're checking um, your groups against two things. Firstly, the transcripts. So you're going back to the transcripts to say, is this really what participants were saying when they were talking about their bike? Or were they talking about some kind of sense of freedom, some kind of, so it wasn't about transport, so much as it was about uh, some other kind of utopian, uh, democratic kind of process that maybe was, is best captured in another kind of way. Or, um, yeah, or is there another way that I could group the data that would better sort of represent what people are saying? And so you may want to, at this point, split groups or merge groups to see what best represents what participants have said. So you're going through a check-in process. Now, what often happens is students say to me, well, yeah, I checked and it was the same. And, and that's fine, but it is still important to check because you want to make sure that you haven't missed something or that you haven't um, misunderstood something and are therefore operating on the principle that this is about one thing and it's not. So it's important to check back because you don't want to completely misrepresent what people are saying to you. The other thing that you're going to check against, so the first thing you're checking against is your participants, the second thing you're checking against is your literature. So at this point, this is the first place if you're doing an inductive coding that your literature and your theory come into the project or into the analysis. And you check against the literature because there may be terminology that you want to use or there may be uh, recommendations from literature that help you to group the data better. So, for example, if the data is saying that there are um, you know, two kinds of transport, that there's you know, the locomotive, steam, uh, engine kind of approach or you know what I mean, the machinery of, of transport, and then there's those that, kinds of transport that are self-pedaled, uh, self-propelled, um, like bicycles, and that actually these two things need to be treated differently, then maybe instead of having a group where you have 
all of those things together, you want to split that group and have two different groups. One, one is the engines and one is self-propelled, and you want to treat them as two separate groups. Or maybe it's actually saying the opposite, and it's saying actually um, regardless of how the transport works, we need to think of this as a holistic system, and you want to take uh, two groups that you'd, you'd separated previously and merge them together into a single group. And that's also fine. So based off of what the literature is saying, you may want to revise your groups. And so this, this as, as I've said, I, see the, I, I label step number four the check, the checking step, because you are confirming with both your participants and your literature what makes the most sense in terms of your groups. And you are revising, you are splitting, you are merging your groups, you are rethinking, maybe you're giving it a new label, Maybe you are um, kicking out just one or two codes or adding one or two codes um, to that group, and um, that's completely fine. This is, this is, it's important that you go through this check step to make sure 100% that the, the groups that you then end up with are the best representation of what has been said and what can best help you to answer your theory and your research questions in the project. The fifth step of Braun and Clark's method is to thematize. And thematize really just means, um, in this case, to decide which of your groups you're going to actually work with. So I recommend that you pick two to three themes that best help you to answer your research questions and that are the most relevant and interesting in relation to your topic. They may be themes that a lot of people in your, in your interviews or focus groups spoke about, or it may be a theme that only one or two people, people spoke about, but it's really interesting and important. So you need to use your discretion at this point to pick the groups that are going to um, give you the most meaty data, the most meaty um, understanding of what has happened um, in relation to your problem and how it's playing out in the context. And that allows you to do some kind of analytic work. And I always recommend that uh, students include at least one theme here of something that they didn't expect. So that they, they're not just, do, well, if they're doing an inductive coding. If they're doing a deductive coding, um, you will use the, the, the codes, the groups that best speak to your, the, your theory. But if you're doing an inductive coding, it's also helpful to have a, a, a group become a theme that was unexpected, because that's where the new knowledge is. It's in those unexpected uh, themes that have emerged in talking to people that you didn't think about or anticipate. So you pick two to three groups. Just by virtue of you picking them, they become your themes. So these are your themes. You don't have to do anything to them. But what you will now start to do is pull in the quotes that you want to use about these groups or about these themes that you think are important for explaining what this theme is about. You also want to start to pull in some literature that helps you to make sense of what has been said, why it's important. Yeah, 
So at this point, you're starting to pull in your evidence. And this is, um, like I say, based in the quotes from the participants and in the, um, the literature, the links to literature that you're making. I want to note here, although I'll probably talk about it as well under structure, that, um, that if you are going to refer to literature here, that you haven't previously used in your literature review, you must bring that into your literature review. So you shouldn't have any literature in your analysis that isn't already in your literature review. And when you are doing an inductive coding and when you are talking about novel themes, new themes, new ideas, sometimes that happens, that, that new literature becomes relevant. And so I do also encourage you to update your literature review, not write a new literature review, but just update your literature review to include the, the new literature. And it doesn't need to be a huge new section um, of the literature review. So what it may be is, let's say race came out and you didn't expect to talk about race and it isn't in your literature review at all. What you can do is go back to your literature review and, and particularly in the middle section where you talk about other theories, you can talk about that there is a perspective on this issue around race and that the key, the key um, ideas about race that, it, that are coming out in literature are such and such and such and they're, they're included in readings by a couple of people who you are then going to refer to in your analysis. So it's just maybe a paragraph, maybe a couple of sentences where you just make a nod towards the ideas that you want to then bring out in, in a much greater detail later on in the analysis. But that is important, no new literature in the analysis that isn't in your literature view. Okay, so that takes us to step six. And step six is the write-up. So this is where you now will, um, in, the, in the recipe, in the methodology section, you will talk about how you've gone about writing it up. But this is now where you actually start to do the work of analyzing. And so you take the themes and you take the quotes and you take the literature and you start to tell a story that will make up your analysis section. So for those who are doing masters and PhDs, this will be an entire chapter, in fact. But for BTEC, it is, it's just a section of the work. So like the literature review is its own section, the methodology is its own section, the analysis has its own section, and you don't talk about Braun and Clark's six steps in the analysis section. That goes into the methodology. Instead, what you talk about in the analysis section is the story that you are writing about analysis. So you need to be able to, uh, yeah, to tell that story in a complete way. I recommend that students write um, between two to three pages for each theme with a lead-in and a conclusion. So you're looking for around seven to eight pages for your analysis. Um, in fact, most students end up writing much more than that because when you think about each individual theme, they are essentially groups with a whole lot of codes inside of them and they, there's a sense that you could write about each of the codes. You're giving quotes from participants. So it's quite easy to fill the space that you have for each of those themes. 
and you are going to be integrating those the components that I've spoken about. The quotes, the literature, and your voice and your analysis. And by your voice or analysis, what I mean is you're going to ask questions and you're going to um, unpack and make sense of what's been said by participants. So you're going to show me why what has been said is important. Why have they used those words? What does it mean for my research problem? Um, why are they... Why are there some people who believe this thing and other people who believe something else? Why does this one person believe something now and then later contradicts themselves? And because you are familiar with the data, it's, it's necessary and important that you are doing that analytic work. Your reader can't do that. So your reader can't, un can't know why, um, or even if participants have been contradictory in their accounts. They can't know um, that there are dissimilarities between participants. They can't, they can't know necessarily why the use of a certain phrase is so revealing of what is happening in the context. You are the most familiar with that data, and this is essentially what you're being marked on. So um, it is hugely important that you do that work, right? that you make the cake in the best possible way to have the best sort of representation of what has been said and, and revealed to you in the interviews. So um, that is how you go about analyzing. And it is hugely important that you um, get to the point where you are actually spending time on that analysis and then you, that you're not just interviewing and transcribing forever, because it is a very large, um, uh, it's a very large part of what you're being marked on, is that the analytics section. Um, okay, so that, that is coding and analysis. I'm going to move on to talking uh, quickly about structure and then about the conclusion. So the structure of your project I've mentioned briefly already. Um, the, the project should look like, okay, let me go back a step. Um, I'm sorry, there was an email that distracted me. That there are three big sections in any research project. The first is the lit review, the second is the methodology, and the third is the analysis. These three sections are the bulk of the body of your project. Each of them should be um, in the region of eight pages. I know the method will, will um, often be a lot shorter, but you don't want to, in order to have a balanced project, you don't want to have them that they are vastly different, that you've got only two pages of methodology and 20 pages of analysis. It just is, is not uh, an even uh, project. So those three things should be roughly in the same region. So I would say 868 is probably a good balance, um, but you don't want to have a literature view that's either very, very much longer than anything else, and you don't want to have an, 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 an analysis that is very much lo longer than the rest. So um, I think that 
trying to keep that balance is, imp is important, so don't let the analysis run away with you. The other thing is, is that you will start the project, obviously, with your title, your abstract. For those who wish to, you can also have an acknowledgements page. This is a very nice thing, especially after a very hard year, to be able to thank people in your life who've, who've made things a little bit easier. Then, um, then comes your literature review, then comes the method, then comes the analysis, then comes the conclusion, then comes the references, and then lastly, your attachments, which must include your uh, transcripts. Now, I've often said to students before that they can um, include those transcripts on a CD or a disc, um, or a drive, a flash drive if they um, want to, and submit them those that way. But as you're probably going to be um, submitting electronically this year anyway, you can include them as separate documents to the, um, the main uh, write-up of your projects. And the reason I want them to be separate documents is because they must have their own page numbers. Because when you quote your participants, you're going to quote them by saying transcript one, page three. If the transcript is embedded in your whole project, it's going to be much harder to give the exact page number to reference those quotes. So please do remember you must reference your quotes in your, uh, in your analysis. So that's the structure of the whole project. You will update your literature review. I've mentioned that already. You will update it to include any new literature that you want to use. And you will also update your methodology to do a couple of things. One, to, to refer to things in past tense. So where your proposal was future tense, I will interview six people. You now need to change that to I have interviewed six people. And you also need to include the practical steps of what you actually did. So instead of saying I will interview someone in a neutral venue, you will now be saying I have interviewed six people using a quiet venue at DUT. Right? So you will give more specific details of what you actually did. And you will do that throughout the, the proposal. So you will update your, certainly your participants, you'll update your your data collection, your analysis, all of that stuff gets updated to, to include more specific details. And this also includes your reflexivity. So um, when we spoke about reflexivity earlier in the year, we spoke about how you can't know what will happen in the interviews, so you can't reflect on it, on it for the proposal. But now that you've done the interviews or you've done the focus groups, you will know what has happened, and you will know if there's anything that you need to reflect on in that reflection section. So did anything surprising happen? Were there particular kinds of dynamics between you and the participants that you need to think through and engage with? Then um, I want to touch on the conclusion. The conclusion does a couple of things, and um, it doesn't need to be a very long section. The conclusion is uh, two to three pages, um, and in it you're going to summarize the findings from your themes, so you're going to pull everything together, so you're going to, sh to show how the different themes add to what we know about your particular problem. You're going to answer your research questions, so you're going to go back to the research questions that you put uh, into your methodology section, and which will stay there, they don't, they don't move, 
but um, you now actually refer back to them in the conclusion by answering, well, what did I find uh, uh, in relation to, to the uh, questions that I was asking my, uh, as a researcher? You will also include in your conclusion the limitations of the project. So were there any limitations? Usually what happens is that um, in qualitative work, our limitation is our sample size. So we talk about um, the, the need to understand that this is a very small sample and that these findings may only be relevant to, to this particular group, but that they have importance because you've systematically analyzed them and made sense of them appropriately. And then lastly, you will talk about any recommendations you have. So this may be recommendations to the industry that you're based in. It may be recommendations to policy. Um, and as always, it may also be a recommendation for further research. Almost all research ends with we need to do more research. Um, and that is, that is always true, even in positivist studies or hard science studies where they are looking for facts. Because the world is changing, there, there are different places and, um, and people who can be engaged with who may shift and change our results. I think even if I think about the development of the vaccine for COVID at the moment, there is sort of continual, um, it ha it's not just a process of, okay, now we got a, a good uh, human trial, we, we're going to stop there. There's now continual thinking about, okay, well, were there any biases in the sample? Where were the sample, was the sample taken from? What were the, why was, you know, 10% not reacting to that? Is there a, a specific group of people who maybe this doesn't work for? So there's continual questions and needs for the research to continue. Research never, in a sense, never stops, and knowledge building never stops, because we, we constantly need to evolve with the times and we constantly need to be pushing research into new spaces uh, with, new, with different kinds of people. So um, it is appropriate to end research with we need to do more research. Um, obviously you'll write that in a, in a more formal uh, sense, but, but that as a fundamental conclusion is, um, is usual, common and appropriate. So we need to do more research. It's a good place to end. Thanks, everyone.